You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm going to read from the prologue to my new book, Under the Stars. I love camping. I hate camping. I can't seem to stop. In case you haven't noticed, campouts hardly ever go the way you want them to go. It doesn't matter if you're glamping or backpacking. On a guided exploration or alone, chaos finds a way. In the course of writing this book, a hike through the history of American camping from the 19th century onward, I have been treated for chillblains, stung by evil wasps, set upon by marmots, chomped on by a large and stupid bird, and knocked unconscious by a wooden plank. That hasn't stopped me from returning to the woods for more doses of enchantment and abuse. It's the fissure, the derailment, the surprise that gives each camp out its flavor and character. I like to think that Leonard Cohen was talking about camping when he said that everything is cracked, but that's how the light gets in. If we want stability and uneventfulness on our vacations, Microtel awaits us. But when was the last time you struck up a meaningful conversation at the Hampton Inn? I've had only one memorable interaction with strangers in a hotel, and it was disturbing. I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, at the Days Inn with my wife, Amy. We had just checked in. When I put the key card in the door, I was preoccupied, and so was my room. When I walked inside, a big-boned couple was making love in the queen bed I'd paid for. The man got up, put in a towel, smiled, escorted me from the room, and kicked the door in my face. Aside from that, I cannot recall any of the people I've met in low-priced lodging chains, but I can remember a thousand faces and stories from my campouts over the years. Dan White is the author of The Cactus Eaters, How I Lost My Mind and Almost Found Myself on the Pacific Crest Trail. His new book is Under the Stars, How America Fell in Love with Camping. Thank you for joining me, Dan. It's great to be here, Rick. I love how you say from the get-go that when you're camping, chaos finds a way. I think that that says a lot about why we actually all want to go camping, because it's a way of introducing a kind of controlled chaos into our lives. That's absolutely true. You know, some of that controlled chaos or uncontrolled chaos is just the energy <laughs> that spins around me personally. But I think it dovetails nicely with camping because camping is so utterly unpredictable. I feel like whatever happens out there, it's never quite the outcome you expect. And so you need to sort of roll with that and have a good humor about it because the stove won't light or maybe you won't be able to light the cook fire, which I've found a lot of times with my kids staring and my wife wondering when I'm going to cook the food and I'm lighting it and then I stick the fire starter on there. Things can just go really off the rails. Um, and so it's funny because it's it gone off the rails to the extent that I sometimes have this initial dread of camping. <laughs> I think, what is going to happen? And I know that whatever is going to happen, it's not going to be according to the game plan I had in my head. And so I think part of the camping spirit is learning to deal with the unexpected and expecting the unexpected. One of the things you say, too, and I think this is really true, another thing that we seek, with camping you cannot hide, in particular from yourself. That is absolutely true because in camping, people often get a role 
and I'm the, for some reason the designated <laughs> fire builder in my family. Maybe that'll change over the years when people see. But it's also just because you are in an unfamiliar situation. You're dislocated. You're in the woods. Um, and this has always been true in camping. I um, was reading about this early camping party in the Adirondacks, and uh, one of the campers said that this is in the 19th century, that camping is a time when all the masks fall off and you're just exposed as who you are. And you can think back on the people that you know whose true colors come out. This can also happen when you're traveling through Europe or in close quarters with somebody. Let's say you were out on a bus trip and four or five days later, you just want to, you know, affectionately strangle the people you're with. But, but camping, it seems like those things happen. They just come out and brought, are brought to the surface so much more quickly than in other forms of travel. Maybe it's because there's bugs and dirt and someone's going to get the tent stakes down, but it just seems like it happens almost instantaneously. The true colors are revealed. You know, we go camping now as a recreation. It's a break from work, but it certainly wasn't always that way, was it? No, no, it wasn't. I was reading about the original camp, the oldest camp site ever found in America so far as 15,000 years old. And no, that was not recreational <laughs> camping. <laughs> it was more of like a hunting grounds, and they would skin the stuff there. But um, skin and game and kind of keep the hides and store things there. Uh, really, the recreational piece of this didn't really start taking off until the Victorian age. People were messing around with it in a recreational context for a little bit. But for a long while, they were considered weirdos. Because when camping was all there was, and when it's subsistence, and you're camping because you're farming, you're camping because you're a pioneer, and you're fighting the elements, fighting the wilderness, you see somebody camping recreationally, you're going to think they're soft in the head. Some people tried it. Um, I read a memoir of a camping expedition Estwick Evans Esquire, a bored New Hampshire lawyer who set out and decided to go on a big camping trip uh, starting at New Hampshire in February. So he was wearing buffalo robes and he had pistols and <laughs> daggers and hunting dogs and everything. And people thought he was just insane and there was no context for what he was doing in the early 19th century. People thought he was some sort of a government spy, spying on them because he couldn't be having fun out there. Your love of camping began with your discovery of a book in a box. Yes, that was certainly part of it. That really deepened my love of camping that was instilled in me uh, by my dad. But the book in a box that you're talking about, the one that really deepened everything and really made the connection for me was, uh, was uh, Walden by Henry David Thoreau, which I, since you've read the book, you know that I discovered that book under very strange circumstances. Um, <laughs> I, this was... <laughs> Uh, my uh, senior year of college, actually, I just graduated from college, and I went to this insane party um, just off the college campus where people were hitting the house with hammers and just beating on the house because it was condemned already, and so they were just going crazy and just knocking things over. And um, the day after that insane party, I went under a crawl space under the house, and I found a box full of books that were set to be discarded. And... Uh, one of them was an E.B. White book that had an incredible um, uh, essay about Walden called A Slight Sound at Evening that really broke it down for me. And then next to it in the same box was a ragged copy of Walden itself, heavily dog-eared, underlined, and that became my go-to copy that I brought to camping trips for years and years until I unceremoniously lost it in a really thorny, invasive uh, bush in uh, 
eastern Kentucky of all places. So it's got to be still there or maybe a pulp form somewhere, <laughs> some little shriveled, <laughs> composted, maybe bears have stepped through it by now or dragged it around. But I just, you know, I like to think part of it's still out there in the woods where I left it. So. You mentioned that your father instilled your love of camping uh, in you, and that was true for me as well. I remember a, a wonderful, a somewhat ill-fated camp out. We went to Pescadero Creek, which you went to, and I remember trying to climb across the creek. I was halfway across the creek, and I climbed onto it, and then I just, my fingers couldn't get a hold of the boulder, and I just slipped ever so slowly back into the creek. And so tell me, what, where does your father take you camping? Yes. And uh, my father, and by the way, the book has kind of become a tribute to my father because he passed away in late uh, March. But um, so I'm hoping this is something that continues to sustain his memory for a lot of people. But oh, yeah, he, he used to take me uh, camping in Mammoth Lakes mostly. Mm-hmm. And uh, before that, a little bit in Yosemite. And we just have memories of I remember on this this trip on the John Muir Trail where we arrived at a creek that was so fierce. We're all we all thought it was so strange, but there was a gurney right there lying on the side of the creek as if they're <laughs> kind of preempting your death. Like it's like, yeah, you're gonna drown, so here's the gurney to carry you away. It's like, well, you could build a bridge over the creek and save a gurney. So I'll never forget that. I also remember us just going up there. And these are the days of heavy packing and exterior frame packs and climbing this insanely steep pass where the marmots were just popping up and they seemed to be laughing at us like eek, eek, eek. And then going up and there was a water source and everyone was so excited about the water source. I think this was the days before water purification too. And then there was a big sign saying, don't drink this. This is poison. (laughs) You could have told somebody before. The signage at the bottom of the pass. What's really funny about all those things is no matter how insane it was out there, and I remember just the mosquitoes, just the sky being just black with these gigantic marmot-sized mosquitoes, is that I would come back and I would kind of, when it, during the during the throes of the camping trip, when I would sort of be pining for the condo where we retire to and and get washed up and have dinner afterwards, as soon as I would come back from the forest, I would want to go out there again. And I thought, well, what is that all about? You know, how is it that things improve through the act of retrospection? <laughs> Gross food, too. <laughs> Dehydrated, crunchy meatballs. And you, you find yourself, I find myself craving Mountain House because it reminds me of Camping Past. I, just the, I, I was talking to this, this editor of Gourmet Food magazines, and I was, because I wanted to do a section on food in the book, and I said, what is the most wonderful gourmet food that you and your family like to have? And they said, Mountain House because it evokes the memories, wow. right? Um, this book is filled with drawings that you made, and they're really charming. Uh, did you make them before or kind of while you were writing the book? I made them during the composition. I'm really glad you you pointed that out. All the drawings that people are going to see in the book of Henry David Thoreau, Theodore Roosevelt, and then some lesser-known figures, they're all things I drew on my kitchen table <laughs> while my kid was watching and I'm really glad people so far have been really connecting with them. I think what I wanted to do was initially have a bunch of collectible, you know, collect them all, heroes of camping, trading cards, kind of like <laughs> baseball cards, where I even had this whole idea that I would market this and maybe there would be a slab of delicious beef jerky in there instead of 
<laughs> instead of bubble gum and people could kind of chew on beef jerky and reflect on camping heroes past which is i don't that's know a brilliant idea oh, thank you, you should I really, do that i really appreciated that and then we went back and forth about heroes of camping and gosh maybe a little slab of chewing tobacco too no i don't know about that have it right there next to the the jerky but um let's have the flavors blend together but um but what they did was uh, then I started thinking, okay, well, maybe that's not going to fly. Maybe they could incorporate that into the design. And then uh, the publisher really liked the idea, and they ended up incorporating just about all of them. There are a few that didn't make the cut. Like I had some heroes of glamping, heroes of glamour camping. I had some. I had one of a few models who were heroes of glamping. I'm trying to think of one of the names, but I think Sienna Miller was one of them. And mm -hmm. I, people felt like that didn't quite work. You know? <laughs> oh, so, I think it's too bad. Now uh, I still have them. You know, I, I, I didn't burn the ones that didn't quite work out. So. Well, when you put together the the card deck, that sounds like a. a, a fine thing or you can uh, sell limited edition prints off your website yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't rule it out i mean maybe i'll still do that market my own jerky brand i don't know <laughs> um one of the things that you mentioned about thoreau as he's this hero to generations that have followed and he's the god you know the the original nature man uh, but he wasn't always that. He was, he was, you know, the dweeb at school. He's the bullied dweeb. That's that's right. And, and so, what I'm thinking when I think of uh, Thoreau is is this this way of reconsidering him as you know not the grizzly Adams, you know, mountain man, art survivalist type. I mean, what I see in in Walden is kind of a standoff between the bookish dweeby guy that you're talking about and nature and trying to find a compromise between them, a happy medium, which I think of as rustic domesticity, where he's out there in his little camping cabin and he has a few amenities, but it's pretty raw, it's pretty simplistic, but it is not to be confused with somebody going out there with a hunting knife and working a trap line. There was a section where, uh, in his life where he actually took a quick breather from Walden and summited Mount Katahdin in, in Maine, and it terrified him. That was the raw nature, and it just about scared his <laughs> pants off him. Uh, like he admired the beauty of it and the, the roaring winds and the tablelands and the kind of austere, beautiful uh, look of the place, but he got the heck down from there as fast as he could because he saw that it was no permanent dwelling place for people such as him. So when I think of Walden, I think of it as kind of the sweet spot for uh, camping and campers because it's kind of where you want to be, that kind of a tension between the wild on the one hand and the comforts of home uh, on the other, which really that tension plays a lot into the history of camping recreationally in America. Uh, I, I like that you point out that he was, you know, he's pretty close to town. He could walk to mom's house if he was was hungry. Uh, I mean, this points out the idea, you know, the the fabulous backyard campout. Yeah, and you described your own backyard campout in, in the very beginning. <laughs> yes, my friend Harlan hosted me in his backyard in Santa Cruz. He lives about a mile away from where I live, and it, it was amazing how wild it was. He lives not far from Arana Gulch, and so when I woke up the next day, there were skunks crawling around. There was a hawk. It just felt like a perfectly wild experience in some ways. You take off to the Adirondacks. That's yes. your first stop. And, and this is kind of, I guess, America's really first stop for camping as well. 
So talk about camping with a guide and the history of that as well. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I thought was so interesting about the, the, the history of American camping is all these, these, these things that seem so weird in, in retrospect, looking back on it, because we're used to going out there and camping on our own and entertaining ourselves and catching our own fish or doing these things. Um, it was accepted practice in the early and even into the later 19th century to go out there with a paid wilderness guide who would do just about everything for you for a really measly sum. It was, we're talking one or two bucks a day play the harmonica to entertain you, catch your fish, set up the shot when you want to kill a deer and do all kinds of crazy things. He would even hold the deer by the tail so you made Tailing, sure you could go yeah. back, you could tail the deer, which just, just seems so so ludicrous. And they could also bring all kinds of stuff with them because these guides had these big guide boats and they would put uh, champagne and people could go camping in their suits. The other thing that just blew my mind is that you didn't necessarily need to bring a tent because a skilled wilderness guide could go out there with a hatchet and a saw and basically clear cut a little chunk of forest and rip the bark from the trees and make this <laughs> this unbelievably wasteful but apparently you know rather comfortable bark shanty that could even repel the elements to some extent and then build a roaring fire. And sometimes this would be one use because they'd be way out there in the middle of nowhere. There's no GPS. There's no, it's hard to find where people camp before. And they would leave this thing to rot in the woods, which is so unthinkable now. But that was common practice back then. One of the things that you point out is that the pull and the allure of this is tied to the romantic poets and this kind of romanticized vision of man in the wilderness. I think that's a really interesting take. And so talk about how that ties to Joel T. Headley. Yes, yes. These people, these were these intellectuals and mostly really well-off and overwhelmingly male, by the way, romantic wanderers. They were deeply inspired by the uh, European romantic philosophers who were already seeing the wrenching industrial changes, the forest being plowed over, all the things that were in the future for Americans at that point that had, hadn't really come into their own at that point. There were these sort of prophets in that sense. So these people were really taken under by these the romantic philosophies. A lot of these people like Joel Tyler Headley, they were really stressed out by their lives. They kind of felt like they were living too much in their heads. And they felt like they wanted to get back to something raw and personal and real without any interference from anything else. They wanted raw and filtered nature. Of course, these people too were going out with guides. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's like they, they wanted the raw and filtered nature on the one hand, but they basically had a bodyguard with them helping them out. So it's almost like they could kind of grapple with their fear of nature and the, and the beauty of it without really having as much of a perceived risk as if they kind of sauntered out there on their on their own. I, I like too the your history of the famous guides because these people had big reputations and they had some really amazing stories. This book is built upon all these amazing stories. It's like a, a quilt that in itself forms the story of camping, but the story of camping is made up of all these really amazing little sub-stories. Well, I appreciate that. These guides were, in, the best of them were insanely talented. They could, uh, Mitchell Sabatis was a legendary guide. You could track a, uh, a deer in the dark and grease his gun with the animal fat and do all <laughs> kinds of crazy things. 
and and it was really kind of hard to get a good guide because they booked up so quickly. But if you got a good one, it was big bragging rights for you because then you could talk about the person that you camped with. And it really it was it, it made the, uh, the the camp it was perceived as more authentic if you got a really great one if you camp with Mitchell Sabatis that made you a somebody, so people were always trying to camp with him and Orson Phelps who they said kind of he had a beard that looked like a rain cloud and it looked like his clothes had never been removed and another another guide named Alva Dunning who was really really skilled as a guide but thought the earth was flat and didn't apparently didn't know who the president of the united states was all these crazy things and then the guides uh, the sports these are the people who were the early campers who hired them they would go back and they'd often uh tell some incredibly condescending stories about the guides uh, written in kind of really mannered dialect you know but it was a real thing then i mean the idea of just hauling off and camping on your own at that period in history would seem a little reckless and uh, counterproductive i think tell us about your trip with a guide whose name was zippy <laughs> zippy is great i called up a business in Lake Placid and I tried to find a guide. It's funny because when I initially called the Adirondack Museum, I called them up looking for information on guides and I even said to the librarian there, it's a shame that there this is something in, that's in the past that I can't get a guide anymore. And he said, what are you talking about? There still are guides here after all these years. So I, I called up Zippy and made arrangements to camp with him. And you know, my expectations were pretty historically based. So I'm expecting Orson Phelps, Mountain Phelps with, you know, as I mentioned, this beard-like rain clouds. And I, I wanted him to have this old antique walking staff. So when this guy shows up and he's got spiky hair and tattoos, including a dragoness, this curvaceous dragoness eating, I believe, a yin-yang symbol, I didn't know what to think at first. <laughs> I didn't know if I should give him a chance because I thought, because he wasn't, he didn't have the look, the historic look that I expected. But he's very much a 21st century camping guide specialized. <laughs> well, talk about your experiences uh, going camping with this camping guide. I mean, how far did you go and what was it like for you? Did you feel like uncomfortable with him in terms of like trying to feel, get back to nature? Was he between you and nature? Well, I felt really comfortable with him. I lost all self-consciousness with him. The only thing that I felt uncomfortable about was the power arrangement, my perceived power arrangement, because I'd studied up on this a lot. And I found myself really not wanting to be smarmy, you know, a smarmy camping sport like the ones in the romantic times who <laughs> go back and say smarmy things about the guides. But I kind of feel like there's something about the arrangement. I'm not going to say it forces you to be smarmy necessarily, but it just is a little bit kind of uh, against my nature to have somebody camping for me in a sense. Um, the, the, uh, the friend that I uh, camp with, Michael, also my editor, the editor of the book, um, just rolled with it. But I kind of tend to overthink things. So I'm thinking to myself, is the guide enjoying this? Is it awkward for the guide? Does the guide feel beholden to me? And so I kind of engineered this rather awkward situation because I was thinking about it in historic terms. Now, the other thing too is because things have changed so much in the wilderness and the Adirondacks, you've got to push a little bit farther to get the authentic wilderness experience. So I felt like we had to earn the fact that the guide was there. So we had to do something extreme. So he had us bushwhack through the Adirondacks and that was insane. I've never seen a bushwhacking experience like that. Every step you take, you're falling into the ground. There are these hidden little natural traps. 
uh, hemlock branches kept whipping across my face. It was like the whole, it was like the Edward Gorey story, the uh, Savage Garden when all the plants come alive and eat people. It really, <laughs> I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but the Adirondacks is not a particularly pl uh, friendly place for the bushwhack. And a couple uh, times I lost track of Zippy and I went into this sort of dead panic. Where are you? And he was standing right there, but the forest was so thick I couldn't see him. It's really amazing that places like that still exist. I mean, it's it, just reading about those places in this book gives us hope, I think. It's one of the fun parts of reading the book. Oh, I feel like in the Adirondacks, a lot of it is really overdeveloped, but there's a lot of places where you still really feel isolated and away. And a lot of times you're driving in the back roads of the Adirondacks and you look into the forest and it just looks black because there's just such a tight weave of the trees, the, the, the undergrowth, the overgrowth, it's so dense. At one point in the camp out with uh, Zippy, when we made our way through kind of a break in those tangled woods with the bushwhack, and there was a stream going through there, and it was so peaceful. And Zippy said something that really inspired but also chilled me. He said, there probably hasn't been anyone standing where you're standing right now in 40 or 50 years. They, why would they be there? And that just blew my mind. This place that is accessible, that's within driving range of these gigantic cities, there are places where you just kind of feel like you've vanished. And not far from where we were uh, camping, there actually was a hermit. And his name escapes me, but he was out there for years and years undisturbed by anyone. It's really a place where you can get away from it all. And the strange thing is you feel like you're worlds away, but you're in the same state you share the state with uh, manhattan with the empire state building it almost defies logic <laughs> now you took a boat trip with uh one of the famous guides joe hackett joe hackett that really is like slipping into the past joe hackett looks the part he has this old camping hat an old hand-woven pack basket and we we're in a guide boat that was built in the mid 19th century and i remember going out there on the lake and there's these little bits these little clumps of fog and these ice caves blowing these gusts at us and every once in a while a loon would kind of pop up and break the surface and it would make the most uh, otherworldly sounds have you heard uh, loons up in the north woods before no no you really feel like you're hearing something from the 19th century as a beckoning spirit from another world. It is just such an enthralling sound. You talked to a man who specialized in recording sounds and nature sounds. I thought that, he had, that was a really interesting part to read. Gordon Hempton is just really a force. Um, he specializes is in these. Uh, he specializes in these incredible sound recordings. Where he's going out there and he's tracking ecosystems with this amazing microphone that almost looks like a mannequin that you'd see at someplace like Bergdog Goodman's or something. It's this big head-shaped thing, and it can really record sounds in a way that just reproduce in uncanny ways. And he's recorded coyotes howling. He told me this amazing story that he once left um, the recorder in uh, the woods of South America somewhere because he just felt a little bit funny about it somehow. He felt like something's a little bit off. So I'm going to come back and I'm going to get my recorder tomorrow. And the next day he plays the the tape back and there's a jaguar going pretty close by. So I think he might have gotten out in the nick of time. And he does these incredible 
I've, I've bought quite a few of them on, on iTunes. When I work out, I use them as sort of a blue noise to kind of block the music that they play at my gym. He also is great at silent camping because he has to be really quiet because he doesn't want to scare the creatures away. And he actually showed me his little sanctuary that he designated called uh, One Square Inch of Silence. It's not approved, by the way, by the uh, NPS, but it's the space where he's supposed to protect the sanctity of the silence. And it's funny because it's not quiet. You hear the Pacific flycatcher uh, calling out. You can hear the water dripping. There's all this sound, but it is almost com it's completely devoid of human influence. And it was just an overwhelming experience for me. I, I loved reading about William H. Murray, and uh, he he wrote one of the primal books of uh, vacation camping adventures in the Adirondacks. Yes. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned him because I feel like I really tried in this book to give the audience a combination of really familiar names, John Muir, of course, Henry David Thoreau. But William H. H. Murray is someone who arguably – has more of an influence on the way we camp now than some of those people, like, like Muir. Um, he pioneered this kind of camping that was really friendly fam for families. Um, now, uh, Phil Terry, who's a, a terrific Adirondack historian, he said that you can kind of have a separation in uh, the Civil War. Before the Civil War, camping was largely a matter of the soul. This pantheistic, intense experience where you're trying to find God on the mountaintop, have this raptures with God on the mountaintop. And Adirondack Murray, as he was called, was a preacher himself, but there was something that was more secular about the form of camping he practiced. And the amazing thing was how much backlash he got for writing this book. People went nuts. They shamed him. He was the schnook of the year. They wrote editorial cartoons about a, what but what a jerk he was. He never truly recovered from the backlash his book received. And it's crazy because he was espousing the kinds of views that we completely take for granted today, such as it's okay for women to go camping, which was considered somewhat off-putting to the, these uh, Victorian male aristocratic campers, the Adirondacks back then. And he said, yeah, they should show up and they should camp with everybody else. In spite of the black flies, which you illustrate in life size, I, I'm thinking that maybe there's a, a, a smidge of exaggeration in the life size uh, illustration of the black fly. But explain what a black fly is and what it can do. Well, first of all, I'm going to plead guilty on the exaggeration. I knew that a native Adirondacker was going to look at that drawing and probably get a chuckle out of it because the, the drawing in the book is the size of a human fist, roughly. I, I don't think a black fly is quite that big, but I think when one of them bites you and your blood is pulling away, it probably feels like it could be the size of the fist. <laughs> um, but what they are is they are this, these pernicious Northwoods creatures and they can bite you really hard and they can slurp up the blood because they actually can sever some capillaries and the blood puddles out. So they're kind of they're these blood thinners. And so they just, they're not only painful and mean, but they're kind of disgusting. And they're really the bane of Adirondack camping to the extent that people know to stay out of the woods for a large chunk of summer. In fact, when one of them bit me in late August or something, related to that, I felt like it was really a privilege because it was taking the effort to bite me in the off season, which I <laughs> trying to give me an authentic, and, and I, I even wrote this in the book. I said, what if the black fly or whatever it was that bit me, what if it's like the great, 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 great granddaughter or, or uh, son of the one that bit Emerson when he camped out there in the, in the 1800s could be, you never know. 
Emerson, of course, plays a big part in this as well. He's a, the spiritual overmind, so to speak. Yes, and he's a spiritual overmind, and his work certainly inspired Thoreau. But one thing that I think is just wonderful is the fact that he just put his money where his mouth is by going out there and camping in the Adirondacks himself, which Thoreau didn't do. Thoreau talked about how amazing it was, <laughs> how awesome that there was this place in the Empire State where you need a guide. He even wrote about this. He said, that's just mind-blowing. I don't think he used the word mind-blowing, but he was really impressed by it. And Emerson actually went out and did it. And I read this oft-repeated story that uh, Longfellow was thinking about going. Not sure if you remember this out. Longfellow was thinking about mm -hmm. going, but then he heard that Emerson was going to br bring a gun. And he said, I'm not going. Somebody's going to get shot. I'm not doing this. And he just backed out and would speak no more of going. And so, but they went and they had a really big time and they were out there in the wilderness experiencing raw nature. But what people may not remember is that there were 10 guides with them, one guide apiece. So they had a lot of protection. And um, the other thing that's so uh, crazy about that trip is that uh, they heard word. It shows you how hard it is to get away from it all even then, and this, we're talking in the 1850s, um, from another camping party, they heard word that a, the transatlantic cable had been laid out. And they were excited. They, this was not considered an intrusion on their wilderness experience. They were really excited to hear about this technological innovation. It shows you that there's never always been a really firm separation between the camping world and city life. That's, I think, one of the things that is interesting in this book that you know you make really clear is that camping is not, um, simply about getting out in the wilderness. It's about putting yourself between the wilderness, I think, in your normal life. And there's a pull from both sides uh, of the equation. That's really, really true. And I think that if people want to have an enjoyable camping experience, it's really good to make peace with the idea that this is not necessarily a raw uh, wilderness experience. I mean, because for this book, and we can talk about this whenever you like, but I did have a, a raw nature experience where I had nothing. And I can attest to the fact that that's not quite as fun or relaxing as camping with stuff because it can be kind of terrifying to be in a raw situation. But terror is generally not what people seek when they're going camping. And so you need to be flexible. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll cheat on the camp out where you'll think, oh, geez, let's just can we, how far is the town? Can we drive in there and get a pizza? We don't do that very often because <laughs> it does seem kind of cheesy because you're trying to get away from it all. But there are times where I feel like I try not to be too much of a, a stick in the mud about that. Uh, well, let's let's uh, jump ahead to Joseph Knowles <laughs> and then uh, Estwick Evans and then your night at Badger Springs. The, Absolutely. The history of nude camping. Yeah, if I'll have to <laughs> gird myself psychologically to talk about that, but sure. Absolutely. So uh, who was uh, Joseph Knowles? He was one of the first. He was a, he was an interesting fellow. He really was. But just before we were talking about William H.H. H. Murray and this guided uh, camping system, you know, the reason why William H.H. H. Murray was such a huge success and provoked so many people to go camping is because back then the guided camping was the way to go, right? People mm -hmm. would go to the Adirondacks and the guides do everything. If they could find one, they'll do everything for them. But after a while, as you uh, get uh, closer to the end of the 19th century, you had a bit of a rebellion against the guided camping system in which people would say to themselves, well, uh, 
is this really an authentic camping experience if I pay some uh, buddy to do everything for me? What would happen if I would go out there and learn the skills myself? It's that same strenuous living impulse that, that inspired Teddy Roosevelt, that inspired the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. This whole idea of going out there and being a woodcraft camper, living off the fat of the land and, and doing it for yourself and really knowing how to build a campfire and wayfinding and pelt drying and all the stuff that your guide used to do. So here's the thing about Joseph Knowles. If you're going to have this new camping system in which people are going to say, wow, I'm this formidable expert of wilderness camping, after a while, you're going to have some wing nuts who are going to say, well, maybe, but I am the best most rugged survivalist camper of all time, and I'm the best. So that's how you get somebody like Joe Knowles, who made this really bold claim in 1913. You guys think you're survivalist? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out into the backwoods of Maine, and I'm going to camp with absolutely nothing. Um, he had a group of reporters watch him go in, in Wilderness Guide, and he showed up, and he disrobed, and he was down to nothing but a jock strap. And he said, okay, fellas, uh, I'll see you later. Oddly enough, he smoked one last cigarette before he departed into the woods, <laughs> which is kind of strange for someone who's about to have this gnarly survival experience. I think I'll have one last cigarette. Somebody offered it to him, but you would think he'd have the wherewithal to say no to a very addictive habit. And you think, gee, how is he going to stay a non-smoker out there? So anyhow, he went out there with the jockstrap and then a couple of the people actually trailed him, apparently to, to maybe to make sure he's not going to chicken out, I guess. And he walked into the woods a few miles, and then he lost them after a while. Then he uh, removed the strap, and off he uh, walked into uh, fame, at least for a little while. But, and he, did he, he made it across America, did he? Oh, and what, Joe, Joe Knowles, uh, he just camped out in a particular section of rural Maine, but his goal was to be out there for two sustained months, no human contact, no outside food supplies, no one helping him in any way, just out there uh, surviving with his bare hands, uh, hopefully not naked the whole time because what he hoped to do is clobber some animals and take their skins and get some witchcraft leggings and, and make a go of it, like just use the whole thing as kind of a supermarket and just really show it can be done and making himself this living experiment in caveman living. And by the way, that you know the newspapers went nuts about it. They thought it was amazing. Now, you tried the same thing uh, here in yes. Santa Cruz County. Uh, talk about uh, getting permission to do it in the first place and then your experiences, especially with the, our local six-legged uh, wildlife. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny how difficult it is to get permission for something that seems so elemental as naked camping. You go out there, you'll just stride off naked. I see some woods here where we're doing this interview, and why not just walk out in, into the woods? The thing is, if you're going to camp for any appreciable length of time, you think of all the things you need, you know, mm -hmm. to, to sustain the camp out when you're naked. And, you know, permission is, in the, is one of the main things that I wanted to have. Um, aside from just raw materials, because I didn't want to do something illegal because I felt like that would make me look like a real crumb bum if I did that. I felt like I didn't want to be breaking laws. But then trying to get someone to say yes to this, partially because of liability and also because of state park rules. State parks was really, I, I tried various state parks and they were really against the idea. I think part of it is because they didn't want me to be nude. There's like a nude and lewd provision actually says nude and lewd in the uh, state parks, but they also were worried that I was going to disturb, you know, wildlife and, and, um, 
treason things. I tried to explain that this is basically like a leave no trace survivalist nude thing, um, but I couldn't get any takers on that. And um, it just, I was really stymied. Uh, I didn't know what to do. And finally, I called up Wilder Ranch, and they were really nice. They did say no, but they said that, I have you tried the SoCal Demonstration Forest? And I thought, wow. I, I didn't even think of that as being a wilderness place, but I tried that, and they said yes. So, so you went out to SoCal Forest. Uh, how did you disrobe your way into the wilderness, <laughs> and, yeah. and what what happened to oh, you? It was, you know, um, I'll give you. The, I'll I'll see. I'll keep the reader in suspense for part of this. But here's what I'll tell you: is that I thought it was really, really important that I disembark from the car while wearing a loincloth, improvised loincloth <laughs> that I bought from a piece of of, of leather from Leatherworks in Santa Cruz. Uh, and I, um, this is a store in Santa Cruz, and I um, jogged in just running uh, shoes and the loincloth with a few provisions that I later hid in the woods. Um, but it was really, really important for me to be in the loincloth jogging down, and squadrons of bicyclists saw me, and sometimes they'd say, hey, and I'd say hey to them, and then you'd hear them almost out of... Uh, out of hearing range and they'd just say, hey, oh my gosh, can you believe, did you see that guy? And it was really important for them to see me because I wanted witnesses. I didn't mm -hmm. want the people question something so upstream. I wanted people from who had been at the SoCal demonstration for us just to read this and say, oh yeah, I remember that freak running down the road. So, But also for authenticity because Joe Knowles started out with a jockstrap. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is I didn't <laughs> want to run afoul of California nude and lewd laws. So I figured I'd, I was covered with the jockstrap. So to speak. You had to use a really unusual uh, place to sleep. Could you describe uh, learning how to make that? Yeah. Um, I had a terrific uh, wilderness survival guide named uh, Robin Bliss Wagner. He lives in Northern California these days, but he was a Santa Cruzan for a while. This formidable but really humble uh, wilderness skills expert. And he was showing me all these different shelters that looked really cool, actually. There's one of them where you just find a lateral branch of a tree and you put all these ribs, these other branches on it, and heap it with debris. It looks cool, but the thing is you'll freeze because there's nothing really against you if you're naked. So he told me that the best way to go would be really to just build this sort of shaggy mound of debris where you're elevated off the ground and then there's a bunch of debris that's on you. The thing about it that's hard is that you're you're basically being buried alive. You are being buried alive. And so you and you can't move that much because then you'll shake off the cover. There's no overstructure to hold it there. Um, plus, you just feel like you're sleeping in the middle of a haystack and you're also kind of buried in the forest floor. But that is among the best way to really stay warm. You talk about, and I never knew about this, the, the, the time that... Uh, Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir met. I mean, that's such a, what a great pair. Yes, I was just thinking about that, about the, the fact that the two of them um, camped, they had this history-making camp out in 1903, these two larger-than-life figures who were both chatterboxes, by the way. They're not particularly great listeners always, and they're kind of talking <laughs> over each other, like blah, 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 and just filling each other with all this stuff. But they managed to have a really good time. It was an influential camp. It helped influence preservation. But um, the thing that just uh, that I find really interesting is camping timeline because that was 1903. Mm -hmm. The first RVs were online by 1910. So it just blows my mind that if, if, uh, 
if the two of them had waited just a few years, they could have gone in a motorhome camp out <laughs> instead of camping in Yosemite. They could have seen their house cars in 1909, well, 1910 or so, and they could have, you know. That's really wild. Uh, I also like the, as a ex-Cub Scout and an ex-Cub Master, I was happy to see your history of the of the Cub Scouting movement. And I didn't realize it was so fraught with infighting and creators and co-creators and everybody fighting about the stuff. And I was especially in, intrigued by uh, um Robert Baden-Powell, who, uh, <laughs> yeah. so explain a little bit about Robert Baden-Powell and his clash with uh, Thompson Seton. Yeah, I love the story of the founding of the, the Boy Scouts because it's almost like reading about the Beatles with these kind of <laughs> infighting, because the founders of the Boy Scouts are brilliant men with oversized uh, personalities. And Baden-Powell was, of course, British, and he was a very storied war hero who uh, um, be- after, after the Boer War, he had this really oversized reputation in England. He used that as a platform to create something for the youth, this youth movement. And, you know, around the same, roughly the same time period, you had Ernest Thompson Seton. He's my favorite Boy Scout co-creator because he's so large in life. He had this great big puffy hair and he had this big bushy, um, this big bushy mustache. And, um, and he was really an iconoclast, really, truly a nature boy. And he sent a bunch of his ideas in uh, this manual for the Woodcraft Indians, which is as Seton's movement, to Baden-Powell. And um, there is evidence that, uh, that, that Baden-Powell cribbed a good deal from, uh, from the, the Woodcraft Indians. Of course, he cribbed from everybody, in fairness to him. But Seton was really incensed, and there was this lifelong tension between them, which I always think is a shame, because I felt like it, 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 I, just, I just wished they'd find some way, found some way of working it all out. And of course, you had a third uh, figure, Uncle Dan Beard, another wildly eccentric, brilliant man, who is also coincidentally an illustrator like, uh, like Seton, um, who had his own group, uh, this, this pioneer-based group. So when you see the Boy Scouts today, it's not just one source. It's multiple influences, including kind of the military scouts of Baden-Powell and the Woodcraft Indians, and then the pioneer influence of Dan Beard all converging into one group. I was found it really interesting about your discussion of your uh, Sparsely attended reading. <laughs> oh, yes. You're talking about the one in Portland? Yes. Oh, yeah, where I met a certain person soon to become really very well known. Yet, um, it, it, it's funny because by the end, there was a decent amount of people, but they were just shoving people into seats. Um, I was on the uh, Portland uh, stopover for the book tour for the Cactus Eaters, modestly attended, but one of the people who attended the modestly attended event was Cheryl Strayed, who um, I'd read a bunch of her work in graduate school, but I had no idea who she looked like, and I didn't know that it was her. And I was trying to guess her occupation, you know, while she was in the crowd. <laughs> and when she said she was still straight, I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I, one thing that I do, I've broken myself away from this. I had this rather uh, obnoxious habit, I guess, of every time I would do a reading and I'd see someone, there's someone that was an author in the audience this was towards the end after she'd come up and the microphone was still alive. And I said, Cheryl Strayed's in the house, everybody. Cheryl Strayed, the writer. And everybody looked at me and their eyes just glazed over. They had no idea who she was. So, <laughs> so anyhow, I, I started thinking 
about because then we had dinner at of all places Chili's. I didn't realize at the time that Portland was this wonderful food place where you can eat these gourmet meals. I was having this drippy burger, and she just sat there eating nothing. And we talked about the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, in light of what happened with Wild, this overwhelming success with with Wild, and in our conversation about the composition of the book, I just started thinking about a hundred years or so, or more than that, before Wild, before. Uh, she started writing this book about Victorian women also having camping adventures and how they were kind of um, marginalized, how there was never an opportunity to write a book like this because it would have been just unthinkable. There was no context for it. So, Well, it, as you show them, it, it's very much the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers things. They had to do the same kind of trailblazing the men did, but they were doing it in like high heels and bloomers and uh, these complicated dresses. You could barely navigate the streets of London with, let alone the trails of America. Well, there, there's this there's this one photo that I'm really proud of that I found um, that it was it was given it was referred to me by a uh, wonderful. Uh, historian professor named Nancy C. Unger, and it shows uh, a woman in the uh, mid part of the 19th century, and she's climbing in the Cascades, and she's got a big gun, looks like a shotgun, and it looks like a semi-vertical cliff that she is climbing, and she's got these big, nasty, blocky shoes and this big, ground-sweeping, smothering Victorian dress. And there she is with this loaded gun cruising up this mountain with this look of absolute determination on her face. I've gotten so many comments about that photograph that is from, from, comes from the Forks Timber Museum up in Forks, Washington. And um, I feel like that photo speaks volumes because it shows you how much determination people had. They're going to go camping and which everything is against them, but they're still not going to be denied. They're going to go out there. I love the sense of humor you bring to this book. It's it's really hilarious. And I think that you do a really good job of bringing out the humor and uh, bringing, bringing yourself in as a character and creating these other characters. Uh, could you talk about just uh, crafting the prose of the book and the kind of ebb and flow of the humor? See, a lot of those things... Um, a lot of that stuff comes out from the redrafting. Mm. And, but a lot of things that st end up striking people as funny will also just sort of hit me kind of spontaneously, and I'm not always sure where it, it comes from. But I do feel like um, the, the humor in this particular book is often very situational. And uh, camping, there's something really universal that I'm playing with, as well as sort of the universal dismay when things don't go the way you want them to. <laughs> so, so very often I'm finding that um, that I'm trying to make the humor much more kind of discoverable, things that people stumble upon, and I'll kind of leave it up to them. I'll try to engineer these scenarios and lay and, and play it the way that I think it is and put it through my own particular mojo filter, and people have been really responding strongly to that. See, what I never want to do is force my hand too much. You won't find very many actual real jokes or one-liners in here, so it's, it's mostly just these ridiculous scenarios. And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I do engineer a basic setup in which the outcome is never predetermined. Um, <laughs> so it, whether I'm camping out there absolutely naked or if I'm climbing Mount Whitney and I've got this disposable waste container and I'm vowing to pick up every piece of trash or worse that I find. So see, the outcome is not the Immaculator. The, the Immaculator is the name of that of that. that that tube that I carried to, you know, to actually to most of Mount Whitney, I 
you know, finally end up setting it down. But, um, but I try to enter into these situations in which I, I don't exactly know if A is going to lead to B, is going to lead to C or D. And I think there's something in that chaos and that unknowability that can engineer these situations that people find funny. It also goes, too, with the original theme we talked about of as camping as a source of chaos. It introduces chaos into your life, and you introduce chaos right back into camping. It's like fighting fire with fire. That's, I think that's really, really true. I'm trying <laughs> to play up on the chaos theme. See, that's part of it. And the other part is I'm always trying to find a way in which I can make kind of a living history. The history is a lived experience for the reader. I tried to make it a pretty uh, tight weave. And, and so I'd always go through a lot of drafting of ideas before I'd settle upon what I wanted to do, what the, the, what the plan was going to be. For example, before I ended up, the, the Leave No Trace store chapter is the one where I'm hauling the Immaculator, this disposable biohazardous waste tube up Mount Whitney, because I wanted to explore the Leave No Trace issue in a way that was really colorful and engaging for the reader and kind of implicated the reader. So I played with all these ideas other ideas. I thought, what if I go out there with this really ecology-minded ranger who tells me, okay, right now you're compressing the soil that's supposed to be aerated, or right now you're terrifying some uh, bird or something. I just felt like, gosh, that's not going to be fun for the reader. And so I really had to kind of go through all these rounds of ideas before I stumbled upon the idea of this tube. I thought, wow, well, if I bring this tube up there, you know, it's it's kind of like a litmus test for how many people are really respecting Leave No Trace rules. If I go out there and everyone's respecting the rules, I'll kind of have a boring story. But if nobody respects the rules and I've got this loaded tube full of different ways, then that's just a pretty horrible experience for me. But it's actually kind of an unwinnable situation because in one scenario, I get a boring story. The other scenario, I got this this huge, this, this thing laden with human waste. So that's one of those things where I had to kind of psych myself up to, to do that particular hike. That was not the easiest for me to do. Well, I, I like too that you uh, address car camping. What is it? One of our, you know, favorite American pastimes. Yes. Uh, it's funny because I was on uh, the phone with my brother-in-law the other day and I was talking about how my dad really just did, he was against car camping. We did nothing but backpacking and how he was this romantic who felt like the only kind of uh, car camping was uh, backpacking. And just while I was on the phone telling him this story, my wife and my kid heard me talking about this and they started saying car camping rules, car camping rules and chanting this over and over <laughs> to the extent that the conversation came to a temporary standstill. I think car camping has been just great for me and for my daughter and for my wife because it's a really good starting point. It's a good introduction to camp life. But I think that the main thing that's really good about it is the fact that it is an introduction to an intentional intensely dense community that's temporary, right? Um, it, you've got to get along with your neighbors. You've got to, well, in my version of the car camping, you usually get to know your neighbors. And so there's something about that where car camping can go really bad sometimes. If people make noise, if they're slobs, if they're inconsiderate, it can wreck the whole thing for everybody. But if people get along, you can have kind of a nice experience. In some ways, it's kind of like living like in downtown, well, living in New York City or somewhere where uh, when it goes well, you feel this wonderful feeling for humanity. And if it goes poorly, you just want to scream and you feel like you're locked in. You can't get out. 
I had never heard of the term glamping before I read it in your book, but I guess that applies, it makes perfect sense. And also it applies too to the world of RV camping. I've always kind of wanted to rent one of those things and take it down to Seacliff, just down the way from where I live and just sit there and sit there in my RV and uh, sip a beer and look out at the ocean. I know exactly what you mean. When I go and see the uh, the big, huge motorhomes over at Seacliff, or if I see them at the Santa Cruz Harbor, those ones that are kind of hulking over the, the, the little canals there, I just always think to myself, where has that been? What have they seen? Especially when you see those little sticker maps on the door. <laughs> it's like, wow, you've been to the Grand Canyon and that huge rig. And there's so much to recommend uh, the motorhome life, except for me actually, you know, driving it. So <laughs> I think, boy, so I do like your idea of just hunkering down with a beer and Seacliff and just staying put. For me, the tricky part is actually, you know, moving the vehicle and trying to see while you're driving. All oh, that's hard because I ended up driving a 27 footer and, and without any experience because you don't really have to have experience they give you a training video and you're good to go which blew my mind i thought boy that's scary i i i didn't know <laughs> oh yeah next time you're cruising down the street in your car and or on a highway and you see one of those rent you know 1-800 rent an rv things just rest assured that those people can't drive <laughs> i'm sure they can drive but but it's like i figured there'd be a tutorial and they were puzzled when I asked if there was a tutorial. They said, Didn't mm. you see the video? Mm. And <laughs> and um, I think with with the with the motorhome, all these things that I thought were true about it turned out to be false. I thought you could kind of cook some pancakes while you're driving. That's a very bad idea. The whole <laughs> thing is like an earthquake. It'd be like cooking pancakes during a seven point something earthquake. You couldn't do it. Where is your next campout going to be? My next campout. See, we're, it's funny because. Um, for a while, I'd camped so much for this book that I had to take a breather. <laughs> but <laughs> but we've been, we, we recently went camping in Big Sur, which was just beautiful. It was all misted over. And there was a wedding party near us. And there was just so much joy in the campground. We went to a waterfall. Um, you know, I'm going to be having a, a, a book tour in uh, going up to Portland and Seattle. And initially, my wife wanted a motorhome at she said, let's just camp our way up there. The thing is, with my luck with a camping, I, mean, I, just, I have to get to the gig. That's the thing. <laughs> if I'm reading at the bookstore, I want to show up at the gig without bear bites or what have you. I want to physically get there. So I think that what I'm probably going to do is try to camp in, in August when I'm you know, no longer touring the whole time. So. I've been speaking with Dan White. His new book is Under the Stars. Thank you for joining me, Dan. Great to be here, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>